0: Welcome to this special bonus episode of Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing the history of Harlan and Wolf, the builders of the Olympic class. Before we dive in, I must inform you, this story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today, there will be some terms in the German and French languages, neither of which am I fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. This company is still in existence, so this recollection will be accurate for the time the company started until the release date of this episode. Welcome back to another bonus episode, Shipwreckers. I hope you're enjoying Titanic Month. What has been your favorite episode so far? We are about halfway through, but trust me, we have so much more fun stuff planned for this month. With the housekeeping out of the way, let's take a deep dive into the history of Harland and Wolf. On April 11, 1861, Edward James Harland and Hamburg-born Gustav Wilhelm Wolff formed Harland & Wolff, a small shipyard on Queens Island. In 1858, Harland was the general manager of the shipyard, and he purchased it from his employer Robert Hickson that year. After purchasing the shipyard, Harland promoted his assistant, that would be Mr. Wolff, to his partner in the company. Wolf was already involved in the shipping way of life, since he was the nephew of Gustav Schwab, a merchant and financier out of Hamburg who, at the time, was heavily invested in the Bibby line. So, the first three ships off the slipway in Harland and Wolf's shipyard was for the Bibby line. Harland was hugely successful because of his ingenious innovations he came up with, namely giving hulls a flatter bottom and squarer cross section to increase capacity and replacing the wooden upper decks with stronger iron ones, increasing the structural integrity of the ships. In 1874, another partner joined the company and his name was Walter Henry Wilson. If you're keeping track, so far our key players are Edward James Harland Gustav Wilhelm Wolf and Walter Henry Wilson. Unfortunately, Harland passed away on Christmas Eve in 1895, leaving behind no heirs. After his passing, William James Peary became chairman of Harland and Wolf until he passed in 1924, but we aren't there yet. Thomas Andrews, famous for designing the Titanic and dying in the sinking of it, became the general manager and head of the drafting department as of 1907. During this time period, the company built Olympic and the two other ships in the Olympic class between 1909 and 1914. They had to construct a larger twin slipway and gantry structure for the new ocean giants. Harland and Wolfe commissioning Sir William Errol and company to put these new structures in. As we know, sadly, Thomas Andrews would pass away aboard the Titanic when she sank in April of 1912 also in 1912 there was significant political unrest in ireland and as a result of this the company was able to acquire a few more shipyards at govan a district in glasgow scotland the shipyards purchased were the former london and glasgow engineering and iron shipbuilding companies middleton and govan new shipyards in govan as well as Mackie and thompson's govan old yard which had been owned previously by william beardmore and company These three shipyards were all next to each other, but they were all acquired and amalgamated to provide a total of seven building berths, a fitting out basin, and extensive workshops for Harlan and Wolfe. They specialized in building tankers and cargo ships at Govan, later purchasing the neighboring shipyard of A and J Inglis in 1919, as well as a stake in the company's primary steel supplier, which was David Covell & Sons. Harlan and Wolfe continued to branch out, establishing shipyards at Boodle in Liverpool, Southampton, and North Woolwich in London. These shipyards would close later in the early 1960s, being the company consolidated its operations to Belfast. As well as creating beautiful liners for White Star Line, they also participated in World War I building Abercrombie-class monitors and cruisers, which included the 15-inch gun-armed HMS Glorious, which was called a, quote, large-light cruiser. A monitor, in ship terms, is a relatively small warship, which isn't fast or strongly armored, but carries disproportionately large guns, and were extensively used by some navies from the 1860s through the First World War and into the Second. A cruiser, for anyone who might be curious, is defined as a type of warship that are usually the largest ships in the fleet behind aircraft carriers and amphibious assault ships, and cruisers generally can perform many roles. If you'd like a deep dive into warships, let me know in the comments section. Military history is fascinating. The company opened a brand new shipyard on the eastern side of the Musgrave Channel near Belfast in 1918, and it would be known as the East Yard. The East Yard specialized in mass-produced ships of standard design developed in the First World War. As we know, World War I ended November 11, 1918, and so Harland and Wolfe moved forward with their shipbuilding. During the 1920s, Catholic workers were routinely expelled from working in the shipyard. This is known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and it lasted from June 1920 until June 1922, during and after the Irish War of Independence and the Partition of Ireland. For the most part, it was a communal conflict between Protestants, Unionists that wanted to remain in the United Kingdom and Catholic Irish nationalists who backed Irish independence. During this two-year period, more than 500 were killed in Belfast alone. 23,000 residents in Belfast were made homeless and roughly 50,000 people fled the north of Ireland because of the intimidation. Most of these victims were from the Catholic minority, and most Irish Catholics in the United States were subject to prejudice, with many businesses hanging signs saying, quote, Irish need not apply, and Protestants throwing up their noses at Catholics. So, this conflict reached Harlan and Wolfe, and Catholics lost their jobs. After this in 1936, the company branched out into Aircraft, starting a subsidiary for aircraft manufacturing with Short Brothers called Short and Harland Limited. Its first order was for 189 Handley Page Hereford bombers built under license from Handley Page for the RAF. During World War II, this factory built Short Sterling bombers as the Hereford was removed from service. During World War II, the shipyard was busy as well. They built six aircraft carriers, which are huge vessels that require a lot of work, as well as two cruisers including HMS Belfast and 131 other naval vessels, as well as repairing more than 22,000 ships during this time. They also manufactured tanks and artillery components during World War II, and it was in this time period that the company's workforce was its largest, peaking around 35,000 workers. Most of the vessels built were at the end of World War II, with Harlan and Wolff focused on repair work in the first three years of the war. The yard located on Queens Island was heavily bombed by Luftwaffe aircraft in April and May of 1941 during what was known as the Belfast Blitz. And this caused a large amount of damage to the shipbuilding facilities and destroyed the aircraft factory, all of which had to be repaired and replaced. The Belfast Blitz was four German air raids on strategic targets in Belfast, Ireland, in April and May of 1941, and it caused significant casualties. This could technically be described as an example of Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, which was a swift method of offensive warfare used by Germany in World War II. After World War II, the demand of jet-powered airliners grew in the 1950s, and thus began the decline of ocean liners. We do have a video on this from last year on the decline of the ocean liner, and I'll put that in the cards for you if you're interested. With this lessened demand for ocean liners and the competition from Japan, this led to difficulties for the British shipbuilding industry. The last ocean liner Harland and Wolff launched was MVR Lanza for the Royal Mail Line in 1960, with the last liner being completed being SS Canberra for p in 1961. There were other notable achievements for Harland and Wolff in the 1960s, even with it sadly not being in the ocean liner Realm of Life. They built the world's first super tanker built in the UK and the largest vessel ever launched down a slipway, the tanker Marina, in September of 1961. On January 8, 1966, Harland and Wolff launched the semi-submersible drilling rig, the Sea Quest, they built for BP at the cost of 3.5 million pounds. And due to its three-legged design, it was launched down three parallel slipways. This is the first and only time this has ever happened. And on September 14, 1969, SeaQuest would discover the UK's first North Sea oil in the Abrowth field, and she discovered the first giant oil field named Forties on October 7, 1970. Without Harlan and Wolf, she never would have been able to do these amazing things. In the mid-1960s, the Geddes Committee recommended that the British government advance loans and subsidies to British shipyards in order to modernize production methods and shipyard infrastructure to preserve jobs. Harland and Wolfe was part of this, and so a major modernization program at the shipyard was done centered on creating a large construction graving dock that was serviced by two Krupp Goliath cranes, known as the iconic Samson and Goliath twin shipbuilding gantry cranes that surely you've seen pictures of. These two behemoths allowed Harlan and Wolfe to build much larger post-war merchant ships, including a massive ship that was more than 333,000 tons. Unfortunately, during more troubles in Ireland that happened from the late 1960s to 1998, Harland and Wolfe was still known as a Protestant closed shop, and in 1970, 500 Catholic workers were expelled from the rolls at the shipyard. This was during the Northern Ireland conflict, also known as the quote irregular war or the quote low level war. It was an ethno-nationalist conflict and it was a continuation of more persecution of Irish Catholics. Luckily, in modern times, much of this persecution has been left in the past, including at Harland & Wolfe. During this difficult time for Ireland, there were financial troubles burdening Harland and & Wolfe, and this led to the company's nationalization in 1977, although not as part of British Shipbuilders, a public corporation in Great Britain that managed the shipbuilding industry there from 1977 through the 1980s. In 1971, the Errol Gantry Complex, where many ships were built until the early 1960s, was finally demolished. The now-nationalized company was sold by the British government to a management-slash-employee buyout in 1989 in partnership with Fred Olsen, a Norwegian shipping magnate. The buyout led to a brand new company that was named Harlan & Wolf Holdings PLC, with the amount of people being employed by the company falling to around 3,000 people at this time. Harlan & Wolff spent the next few years building Suez Max Oil Tankers, which are oil tankers capable of transiting the Suez Canal in a laden condition, and this term is almost always used to describe tankers. The company has continued to focus on vessels for the offshore oil and gas industry ever since. The Yard was part of the then-British Aerospace Team for the RAF's Future Carrier, or CVF, program during the late 1990s. They contemplated the ship being built at the Harlan and Wolff dry dock right there in Belfast, Ireland. BAE merged with Marconi Electric Systems in 1999 forming the new company BAE Systems Marine, and this also included the former Marconi shipyards located on the River Clyde in Scotland and at barrow in furness England, which rendered Harlan and Wolff's involvement in the project null and void. And yes, Marconi Electric Systems was the same company that made Marconi Wireless used on steamships, the company being founded on July twentieth, eighteen 1897 as Marconi Company. Marconi Wireless Telegraphs used Morse code to allow different places, including ships, to contact one another over a long distance. Once again facing pressure from their competition, Harland and Wolff shifted and broadened their portfolio, focusing less and less on shipbuilding they moved into design and structural engineering, as well as continuing to do ship repair, offshore construction projects, and metal engineering and construction projects, often running to competition in this arena in particular. Because of this movement of focus, Harlan and Wolfe ended up building a series of bridges in Britain and Ireland. For example, the James Joyce Bridge spanning the River Liffey in Dublin, and the restoration of Dublin's Penny Bridge, also a bridge over the River Liffey. They built on the success of these projects to launch into civil engineering with both feet, constructing the Foyle Bridge in Derry, Northern Ireland, in the 1980s. Sadly, the last ship built by Harlan and Wolfe from start to finish was MV Anvil Point, one of six almost identical Point-class sea lift ships that were built for the Ministry of Defence. The Point-class ships are roll-on, roll-off, or row-row, sea lift ships available for use as naval auxiliaries to the British Armed Forces. We have covered other row-row ships in the past, including MV Estonia, SS Herald of Free Enterprise, and SS Alfaro. Faro if you are interested. MV Anvil Point was built under license from German shipbuilders Fleinsberger Schiffbau Gesellschaft, and the ship was launched in 2003. Have you heard of Cunard Line's Queen Mary II, a.k.a. one of the only ocean liners still providing transatlantic services? Well, Harlan and Wolff tendered against Chantiers d'Atlantique, one of the world's largest shipyards and located in Saint-Nazaire, France, to construct this ship. But they failed to get the contract. An invitation to tender is a formal structured procedure for generating competing offers from different potential suppliers or contractors looking to obtain a project from a business. So, Harland and Wolfe were almost the ones to build this beautiful new ocean liner, but unfortunately, it just wasn't meant to be. In 2003, Harland and Wolfe's parent company sold roughly 185 acres of unused shipyard land and buildings to Harcourt Developments for 47 million pounds. This area is now affectionately called Titanic Quarter, and it includes the fantastic 97 million pound Titanic Belfast visitor attraction. It opened in 2012, and it is located in the same shipyard where RMS Titanic was built, and this attraction tells the stories of the Titanic in detail. Check it out if you're ever in Belfast. In recent years, Harland & Wolff has had more ship-related work, though not in shipbuilding itself. Instead, the company is now involved in ship repair, refitting, and overhauls, as well as continuing to repair and construct offshore equipment like oil platforms. SS Nomadic, the only surviving White Star Line ship, and the only Olympic class tender boat around, was to be refurbished by the company who constructed her when Harlan and Wolf announced they'd won the contract to do this project on February 1, 2011. Structural steelwork started on SS Nomadic on February 10, 2011, and it was completed just in time for the 2012 Belfast Titanic Festival. In July 2012, Harland and Wolf carried out the dry docking and service of the Husky Oil Sea Rose F-P-S-O vessel. And F-P-S-O stands for Floating Production, Storage, and Offloading. Harland and Wolf's twin cranes, Samson and Goliath, still soar high in the sky in Belfast, standing tall like the icons they are. It's rumored there's speculation about a resurgence in the prosperity of the company because of their diversification into emerging technologies, specifically in renewable energy development, like offshore wind turbines and tidal power construction, though these rumors aren't confirmed. The UK planned to build 7,500 new offshore wind turbines between 2008 and 2020, which created great demand for heavy assembly work that Harland & Wolff specializes in. Wind turbines on land are typically built where they are going to be placed, but offshore wind turbines have part of their assembly done in a shipyard, and then being shipped to construction barges to complete the job. As a result of this high demand for renewable energy construction, in 2007 the Goliath gantry crane was recommissioned, having been mothballed in 2003 due to lack of heavy lifting work. Harlan and Wolf began construction at Belfast on 60 Vestas V90-3MW wind turbines for the Robin Rig Wind Farm in June of 2008, with this being the second offshore wind farm assembled for Vestas by Harlan and Wolf, with the logistics for the Barrow Offshore Wind Farm having been finished in 2006 two years earlier. In August of 2011, Harland & Wolfe completed logistics for another wind farm, the Ormond Wind Farm, which would consist of 30 RE Power 5 MW turbines. In March of 2008, Harland & Wolfe finished the construction of the world's first commercial tidal stream turbine for marine current turbines, and it was completed at their Belfast Yard. In April of 2008, in Strangford Low, the installation of these 1.2 MW gen tidal system began. Later in July of 2010, they secured another contract, this time to make a prototype tidal energy turbine for Scott Renewables Limited. The manufacturing of this SR250 device was completed by Harland & Wolfe in May of 2011, and ever since, it has been undergoing testing in Orkney. Ever since April 2012, the booming industry of offshore wind power has taken center stage for Harland & Wolfe, completing numerous wind farms since then. 75% of the company's work was based on offshore renewable energy in 2012, and this attracted a lot of inward investment. Unfortunately, the yard was last profitable in 2015, with the company losing £6 million in 2016. Fred Olson & Company, Harlan & Wolff's parent company, restructured in 2018 and decided to sell Harlan & Wolff. No buyer stood up to buy the company, with the company announcing they'd cease trading and enter a formal administration as of August 5, 2019. Because of this, on October 1, 2019, the shipyard was bought for £6 million by the London-based energy firm InfraSantra Saving Harland & Wolff. In August of 2020, during the pandemic, InfraSantra also purchased the mothballed Appledore shipyard for £7 million. This deal would see this shipyard called the H&W Appledore Shipyard, complementing the H&W Belfast Shipyard by focusing on smaller ships of up to 119 meters, or about 390.42 feet, in the shipbuilding and ship repair market. As of February 2021, Infrastrata also acquired two BIFAB yards for 850,000 pounds in the Methyl and Arnish Yards, though not the Burnt Island facility. These two Scottish Yards will trade under Harland and & Wolff, and it will help the company to continue delivering on its existing strategy quicker than it would have with only two sites. Thank goodness Infrastrata stepped in to save this historic company, and to continue its legacy under the Harland & Wolff brand name. As of January 2023, Harland & Wolfe got their first contract to build ships in 20 years. The three support ships for the Royal Fleet Auxiliary will be operational in 2032, and construction will begin in 2025. This is incredible, and such an exciting development for one of the most famous shipyards in the world. And that, dear listeners, brings us up to date on the builders of Titanic and what they've been up to for 161 years. From shipbuilding to renewable energy, they've found a way to survive and prosper, keeping the legacy of the company alive and well. I hope you enjoyed this look into the company. I was surprised by a lot of the information I found in this. Thank you for tuning in to another bonus episode of Titanic Month on Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a 5-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Tune in next Monday for another bonus episode on the life of Robert Ballard, a retired American Navy officer and professor of oceanography famous for finding the Titanic. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.